0: This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Today we're happy to have Theresa Gagne-White, who's going to talk to us about the White Poppy Movement, and we are going to be partnering with the White Poppy Movement this November. Hi, I'm Theresa Gagne, and I'm a new member of the Humanist, um, one of the uh, founding members of the very small organization, that for Peace Poppy. So about more than 15 years ago, um, my partner Vinnie and I met a woman downtown who was handing out white handmade copies. And she had a little piece of paper that explained that they were peace copies and that they had been, the idea had started in Britain in the 1930s. And we thought that was pretty interesting. And I, although my dad's a vet, had always felt certainly some ambivalence about The red poppy and the way that it was, I felt, being used to kind of condone a certain uh, militaristic attitude. So um, we liked the idea of the white poppy and we started wearing our own white handmade poppies. And we tried various materials, making them out of cardboard, styrofoam. The worst option, painting the the red poppy white, took about six votes. That militarism is really hard to stamp out. Man, it was unbelievable. <laughs> we gave up on that pretty quickly. Anyway, what we found was wearing the poppies is that people we on the bus and at work would stop and they would ask us about the poppies. What did it mean? Where did it come from? And we decided over the years that it seemed like it was really kind of a good way to get people talking and thinking about war and remembrance. So we looked into whether we could get more poppies to make them more widely available. We found out that we could import them from the Peace Pledge Union in Britain, which makes the poppies. And so in uh, 2007, we did our, our first white poppy campaign as from Peace Poppies with 50 handmade poppies. And the next year we imported uh, 500 from Britain. And uh, the last two years, we've been up to about 4,500. So it's definitely been something that's been a very satisfying experience for us that there really is the interest in it. Um, So we do a lot of mail order with talkies across Canada, which wasn't something we planned. It just sort of happened that people would contact us and say, you know where I can get one in? Ottawa, Winnipeg, Cash Creek, whatever, and so We started a new mail order, and now probably about half of our copies are are mail order. And we also have a, particularly in the last few years, we've had quite an extensive uh, schools campaign where we provide subsidized copies for teachers to use in the classroom. And that kind of kickstarted us to get a lot of better resource material on our website for teachers to use. So that's kind of a little bit about the background of our group. So basically we order the poppies from Britain, we take over our dining room table for a couple of months, and with the help of a few volunteers at these Poppies, answer innumerable emails, and um, this year we have launched this uh, special inaugural ceremony on November 11th. So a little bit of history of the white poppy, actually a little bit of of history of the red poppy, too. So the red poppy started um, in 1921. The first Armistice Day, which was at that time called Armistice Day, um, was in 1919. And at that time, it was very much a a solemn reflection on the, the horrors of war and the relief that we, what was then thought of as the Great War, the war to end war, was over. And then subsequent to that, um, it kind of gained a more uh, militaristic cast. But in uh, the first, uh, Red Poppies were actually an idea that came from Americans, that had been in France, and they were actually being used to raise money for French war orphans. So that's kind of interesting to think that, in fact, the original roots of the white blood Coffee was actually um, more uh, focused on civilians rather than veterans. But um, by 1921, it had been suggested that um, the British, I don't think it was called the Legion then, um, which was trying to raise money to take care of veterans because. The it wasn't the kind of social service network that it is now, but they take take up the red coffee, and they did with great enthusiasm, and it, um, according to the Peaceful Union, I think it said that uh, there was one and a half million red poppies sold in, in Britain in 1921. That's uh, pretty impressive, and it says, um, remember the coffee rapidly became an established part of British life. Poppy Day, said the Western Daily News in 1927, was one flag day when every man, woman, and child was hardly an exception wears the emblem, And uh, we certainly see that to this day, that there's a, a lot of pressure for anybody who's in a public position and anybody who's on the television news or whatever uh, has to be uh, pretty bold to uh, dare to object to wearing their, their red poppy. So in the aftermath of the First World War, it was pretty obvious by the late 1920s and the early 30s that the militarism was building up and that the country wasn't a lot of ways preparing for another war and that the lessons of the last one hadn't been learned. And that was when the Women's Guild, which had been working more and more for peace, came up with the idea of the White Poppy. And so that the White Poppy campaigned the first was in 1933, and by 1936, the Peace Pledge Union, which is the group we get the pockies from, had taken it up as a definite pledged peace that war must not happen again. And by 1938, 85,000 white pockies, by then acknowledged that nostalgic we'll piece, were sold, and many people wore them alone, and others wore them as a lot of people do now, as I'm really with the red pocky. So. There was a real sense that the people who came up with the white hockey, they were not anti-military. In fact, many of them were wives, uh, daughters of veterans, and so they knew firsthand how terrible war could be and wanted to make sure that it wasn't going uh, to do everything that they could to try and have it not happen again. So. The White Puppy, I think, was popular, but certainly not without some objections during the period between the 1930s and the Second World War. With the start of the Second World War, um, the armistice day was discontinued, obviously. I guess they figured, although I don't know that they still do that now, that it was kind of inappropriate to be celebrating the end of war while you were in the middle of starting another one. So, of course, with the kind of intense patriotism, I think, um, the, the white poppy became uh, not as nearly as widely used until it was kind of revived in the 1990s with a, a ceremony to lay a white poppy wreath and a, a renewed interest. And since that time, the interest in Britain has really grown and grown uh, enormously with the white poppy and they're also used in a few other places like Australia and Canada. So that's um, just a bit about white poppies. So there we can see women with white poppies on a wreath in 1938 in Britain. And um, the Peace Pledge Union, um, they do a lot of really excellent peace education work. They um, have some you know, wonderful um, publications, both books and uh, short pamphlets. And this one I, I particularly liked Um, this what will we be remembering because it says, militarism is not just about the outward show of bellicose rhetoric, medals, and soldiers proudly marching through towns when returning from wars or parading in front of the monarch. It's a cast of mind and belief system that privileges the age-old values embodied in war fighting. A cast of mind that sends princes and prime ministers to sell weapons to even the most unsavory despot. A cast of mind that funds research and production of ever more devastating weapons and associated technology. A cast of mind that believes that men and women trained to kill can provide an especially beneficial role model in schools and pass on their values to young people. A cast of mind that without us apparently noticing is eyeing our cities as battlegrounds to be surveilled and patrolled. The distinction between um, policing intelligence and the military becomes blurred, as does the distinction between war and peace and local and global operations. War has become the dominant metaphor to describe much of the world around us. War against drugs and crime. War against terror, against insecurity. These are not just sloppy use of language, but reflections of stealthy militarization of a wide range of policy debates, as well as popular culture. So I think that's really quite interesting because it's true when we we think about it, how often we, we hear the word War and, and the idea that battle is a noble thing uh, that, that everyone should aspire to you know to the extent that people are urged to you know battle against death and you rarely read an epitaph that says that somebody you know gracefully accepted their death but the, it's the appropriate thing to do is is battle and we really I think internalized this idea that that kind of thing is an inherent good. So um, that's I think probably about as much as I'm gonna say about the Peace Pledge Union. The poppies that we distribute, we distribute for a one to two dollar donation, which is basically enough to cover our costs. The poppies are, are quite expensive, they're nice fabric poppies and they cost us, depending on the exchange rate, about a dollar each. So anything we get in excess of our costs helps us to provide subsidized poppies in the schools and uh, free poppies in places like the downtown East Side. And we've been really uh, gratified by the, the response to the campaign. So that's just a donation box. We have a few um, cafes and businesses that have uh, display boxes. If you live, particularly if you live somewhere in the suburbs, if you know of a business or you have a business, doesn't, it doesn't need to be any kind of business. It could be a, bride cleaners, other parts store, any place that has a counter that would be interested in having a display box. Um, we'd love to have more uh, depot locations. Basically, we provide the poppies, uh, tin for collecting the money, and whatever we get, we get. There's no responsibility on the part of the business to, uh, that there would be a certain amount of money. So if it happens that somebody comes in and steals the tin, that's just the way it goes. But we certainly would love to have more depot. so if that's something that you can think of as a place that might be interested, do let us know. We also have a, a website with quite a lot of information on it, and um, there's copies over there in cards um, which give more information about us and about the white poppy. So the other thing that I said I talked about today was the civilian victims of war, because that's really one of our big focuses with the White Pocky Campaign to remember the civilian victims of war and also the environmental consequences of war. And these two wreaths here, um, the poppies were made for us by local elementary school children um, a few years ago, to highlight the changing shift in civilian versus military casualties. So this wreath here closest to me represents the, the ratio of casualties for World War I. Even then, about 40% of the casualties were civilian, including a lot of people who died from famine for in the reactor war, so not necessarily people who were kill in combat. And the next wreath reflects the current statistics, which is that 90% of the victims of contemporary wars. Uh, or more than 9% are now civilians. And we think that that's a, a really crucial thing that we need to bear in mind on Remembrance Day and that we need to make sure that governments and the wider community are bearing in mind. Because really when we're counting the costs of war, if we're only counting our own military costs, those are actually for most of the major powers, getting smaller and smaller because things like drones, high altitude targeted bombings, um, outsourcing of a lot of what used to be military tasks to private contractors and things, all of those are things that in some ways are, you could say are making war safer for the military from a physical point of view but making it much more dangerous for civilians with cluster bombs and uh, depleted uranium and many other things. So we really need to, if we're looking at the costs and consequences of war, to be sure that we're counting all the costs and that certainly includes the civilians that are now making up 90 percent of the victims. So I just have some slides that um, Kind of display some of the groups that um, we're highlighting in our campaign and particularly in the event that we're having with the Humanist Association on the afternoon of November 11th. That's a picture from a 2012, just uh, a, a banner that was made by local uh, local veterans group called uh, Veterans Against Nuclear Arms. And uh, I just think that that's such a such a beautiful, strong message that we chose that as the title for uh, the event that we're holding this year. So, by far, the biggest group of uh, civilian victims of war are um, refugees. But here's a, another slide that we can see that civilians are being directly targeted. These from World War II civilian cities targeted. We um, can see some some more recent ones, and of course every day on the news we're we're hearing about Syria but it's not just happening in Syria, it's also happening in villages in Sudan and Somalia and many other places. So refugees, I thought that was those were a very interesting image looking at that boat in nineteen nineteen of war refugees and then a photo from just a few years ago and and just to think that we really haven't come very far that we still have desperate people struggling onto overcrowded. So these are statistics from the UNHCR 65.3 million refugees, that includes both uh, the 21.3 million, which would be uh, refugees that are outside of their own countries, and the others are internally displaced refugees, so people who fled their homes but may be living in camps in another part of the country or with relatives. And just the statistics, I think, are, are really quite stunning. Almost 34,000 people a day forced to flee their homes because of conflict or persecution. I mean, it's just stunning the the numbers. It's 54% from three countries: Somalia, Afghanistan, and Syria. We hear a lot more about Syria, but um, the the numbers are really shocking overall. And we think of ourselves as kind of pretty generous. We took in 25,000 Syrian refugees out of the 4.9 million. But look at the top. Who the top hosting hosting countries are? Jordan, mm-hmm. Ethiopia, is Iran, Lebanon, Pakistan, and Turkey. Turkey, with two and a half million refugees, makes a wealthy country like Canada with a paltry uh, thirty thousand look not really remarkably generous. So um, refugees really um, are, are more in people's mind these days, and people are more aware of refugees as a civilian victims of war. Sorry, I think maybe in in earlier decades we we were maybe more thought of refugees as economic refugees and. We were aware that, yes, they were fleeing war, but not to the same extent that it's been in the news now. So um, another big group who are victimized in war and have been really for all time, uh, disproportionately, is women, that women have been uh, victims of sexual violence used in, in ethnic cleansing, as uh, sexual slaves or just forced into prostitution by, for economic reasons. And this is just a few of the examples that the one in there, probably a, um, being shamed as having been a collaborator so it have been economic reasons that led her. Um, so just in, in so many different um, countries and conflicts women are, are victimized and victimized in so many ways because they're they're victimized directly by the by the conflict, they're they're killed or raped, um more severe than, than the children. They're also um, sometimes taken captive to be used as sex slaves or as menial you know, workers to keep the, the armies going. And um, so here you can see the, the Nigerian girls and the photo, photo provided from Boko Haram. The girls at the top there are uh, Yaziri uh, minority women who've been uh, captured by ISIS and are apparently being just sold as to raise money, just sold as, as slaves to raise money for the for the campaign. And Women are just in grave danger when they're fleeing. They are often without uh, any form of protection. Um, they're fleeing with their with their children. Um, they're very vulnerable to attack, to um, be forced bribed bribe to provide sexual services in return for some kind of protection. And even when they get to refugee camps, we're finding, we're hearing more and more of cases where either uh, women and girls are being raped and assaulted who are living in refugee camps but when they're leaving to get water or resources or in some horrible times where they even have been assaulted and raped by the UN refugee personnel the very people who've been charged with protecting them. So that's another uh, reason we feel that it's very important to recognize the suffering of women in uh, conflict. Um, another group that's um, we'll be uh, mentioning this in this um, ceremony is child soldiers. Um, in many different <coughs> conflicts, children are being used, um, both boys and girls, more boys and girls, as um, Soldiers' children, as young as ten, and again, that's a group we don't really hear about. They don't fit into the military remembrance day ceremony, but they're certainly um, victims of war. And there's an estimated forty to fifty thousand child soldiers. So that's um, again a very big um, concern. Medical and aid workers are frequently Uh, directly targeted, showing the areas where there have been attacks, and so you can see that there's a lot of different places and a lot that we don't hear about. Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sudan, uh, Libya, places that these attacks are happening, whether they're on field hospitals, small medical institutions, aid convoys, um, and we're not hearing about it, but um, that's, again, another group that we feel needs to be recognized, people who maybe stayed in their country because they know they're so desperately needed and are being, in some cases, directly targeted, sometimes by ISIS, in some cases by Western forces. Um, that's a hospital that was, that in that last photo, that was uh, in Afghanistan, that was uh, bombed by the U.S., uh, and medicine and San Fronteras Hospital. So again, a very important group we think to recognize and bring to mind. Children um, are, of course, enormously um, suffering the consequences of war. Um, whether they're orphaned, injured by um, landmines or shells or cluster bombs, um, killed directly, as we've seen, you know, children drowned, fleeing. Um, In overcrowded refugee boats, really devastating. To think that you're somehow thinking that it's not the right day that we should remember the civilian victims of war. And I put those two pictures of children on a beach just because I'm. One of the things that's concerned me as an individual is the the photo, the very iconic photo of Alan Kurdi and the. The, in some ways wonderful effect that it had of galvanizing public opinion worldwide about the Syrian conflict. But I look at these other two older pictures, um, the upper one is a, a Palestinian child who was um, one of, I think, four or five children, Palestinian children who were playing on a beach when it was shelled by the Israelis and they were killed. And um, this other one, I'm not sure where that comes from, but. I wonder whether it was easy for us to, we looked at that picture of, of Alan Curdy and he looked so familiar. He looked like he could be in your grandkids' preschool or the little boy down the block. And I wonder, would we have responded the same way if it had been a little black child? Or is it somehow that it was easier for us to recognize that suffering because you look like us. So that's something that I kind of struggle with and why I wanted to include some of those other images of children who have been victimized by war. So this is the card we hand out with the poppies to commemorate all victims of all wars and to also recognize the environmental devastation caused by war, which is really um, seriously under-recognized and which I think we should all be. Bearing in mind when we're, you know, concerned about pipelines and tankers is that the military footprint, carbon blueprint, is huge, and that's another good reason that we shouldn't be shipping oil that's going to go to feed the military and to um, cause more um, hardship. Rejecting war as a tool for social change, we're, we're, we hear about the. That the responsibility to protect, and which has been used as a reason that we should um, invade countries and, and uh, because they're, they're so um, you know, violent or they're so falling apart, that the best thing for us to do is to go in there with our military and, and take over. And I think we really need to recognize that war doesn't work as a, as a tool for social change that imposing things from the top doesn't work. If you look at the recent countries where that's been tried, it hasn't resulted in the great uh, democratic states of Afghanistan and so So, and to really call for dialogue and, and peaceful conflict resolution. I feel that it's really important that Even if people um, argue that that some wars are justified, that really the only way that you could know whether a war was justified is to balance the costs and benefits. And we can only do that if we're willing to count all the costs of war, the civilian costs, the environmental costs. Um, So those are some things. Um, Another couple of groups that I wanted to mention that are going to be part of this, um, of our event on uh, November 11th are conscientious objectors and war resistors. Um, Again, we think that that's another important um, recognition that people who've who've really had the enormous courage to stand up and say, no, I won't participate, and who face exile, um, imprisonment, um, Uh, court-martial death, depending on the country, um, what you're risking, um, that they've um, really um, taken a very courageous stance and that, that needs to be recognized. Another big one that I wanted to mention is the lost potential of approximately 50 million children whose education is disrupted by war. Think of that, 50 million children some of them have have never been to school because war has been raging in their countries for their whole lives it might be too dangerous to go to school the school maybe have been uh, destroyed in bombing there may be no teachers but all of those children represent huge lost potential for the whole world of all the things that they could have become whether it was uh, Pharmacists or farmers or accountants—that um, that alone is a is a huge social and economic loss that really is being, I think, seriously underrecognized. And uh, the last two groups, PTSD sufferers, civilian and military. Uh, one of the really shocking things I think is the statistics on. PTSD in the military, um, that that of people coming back from um, Afghanistan, 30% of the Canadian military coming back are um, felt to be suffering from PTSD. And again, if we're thinking about the costs and consequences of war, even if you think that war sometimes is important. Surely, we owe it to the military to be sure if you're asking somebody to have a, a 30% chance of coming back so uh, mentally and emotionally scarred that you may never fully recover. We'd better be darn sure that there isn't another alternative that might work better. And that, to me, again, you're, you're told over and over, we hear, oh, you know, we tried negotiation, it didn't work, they say. And they say, Oh, look at Camp David, right? There's one or two examples people will come up with, and they say, Well, you know, we tried that and it didn't work. But if you look at the statistics, since World War Two, there's an estimated two hundred million casualties, deaths from war and conflict since World War One. Sorry, not the conflict, since World War One. Um, and That's a pretty clear indication that it's war that doesn't work. It isn't working. Have all our interventions in the Middle East made? They certainly haven't made the Middle East a safer place and it's pretty arguable that they've even made the Western world a safer place. If you look at the um, instability in Europe, if you look at uh, the degree to which North Americans are actually be encouraged to feel that they are unsafe. um, I think it's really important that we counter that argument that negotiation and peaceful resolution don't work with the clear evidence that war doesn't work, hasn't worked. And that really, I mean, if you look at the statistics, to think that those 200 million people, you know, is that really, you know, holding the torch high? And do we really think that that's what the 20 million people who soldiers who died in in World War soldiers and civilians who died in in World War One would regard as a, a good like, legacy and and a good sacrifice that that 200 million more people have died since? So anyway, those are just kind of some of the the, the thoughts and. Um, Ideas, again, my idea with our point with the White Poppy Campaign is to get people talking and thinking about what we remember and why and how we can more effectively push for better ways to deal with international and internal national disagreements. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think the evidence is pretty clear that militarism isn't the answer. That militarism as the answer to the, I mean, yeah, it goes back and back. It's like, okay, there's the, there's 9-11, but well before that there was Iraq and what the U.S. was doing in Iraq and um, the huge uh, civilian suffering that was uh, being caused there, that, you know, it all cascades down. But if we look at what we've been doing what our Western powers have been doing so far, we can see that that's not working. So we need to look into other things that might work. And they might not work. But what we're doing now isn't working, definitely isn't working. And so to kill more and more people because, oh, those people are unreasonable. And another interesting thing that I found when you read about a lot of we see as, as this ethnic, tribal thing, oh, so people that just can't get along. Um, in fact, you find out that, well, historically, they did get along, that, you know, Lebanon was a, you know, peaceful, multi-religious country, yes, as was, you know, Syria for, for many years, and that um, often what, what causes these changes is the kinds of intervention that, destabilize a certain structure and cause the rise of a certain faction. Um, even Rwanda was a country which had you know, the two tribes living in you know, relative peace. But historically, if you look at the kind of disruptions that were done by Western powers that brought certain groups, gave them more power, more authority, built up resentment in other groups. So we need to be really careful about thinking that, oh, well, those people can't just get along. They've always hated each other. Because in fact, when you look at most of those countries, you'll find that most of the time, people did manage to to live together. And that often, it's outside intervention that destabilizes the situation. We make a point on our website, and I usually make a point, which I didn't today, saying that I think that it's wrong to say that the red poppy represents militarism and the celebration of militarism I think it's fair to say that it has is certainly used that way um, by governments um, that it's used as a way to um, drum up support for Current military conflicts, and not just to remember um, the sacrifices of the past. I wear both poppies. My dad was a World War II veteran. I'm a strong supporter of the of the white poppy. I have friends who were um, veterans um, who support the the, the white poppy, but I think that it's very mistaken to say that to think that you know what someone else means by the red poppy, because I think that, like the the white poppy, it's a a very nuanced thing. There are people who wear it to show their unquestioning support of the military. And I've certainly met people who refuse to consider the white poppy as anything other than an insult to um, veterans and the military. But I think there are a lot of other people who are wearing it as a recognition of the loss and um, you know whether we we use terms like um, you know sacrifice and noble and loss of you know gave up their lives um, you know most of those people I think you know had their lives torn from them and didn't um, so I think it's really important to to not judge what someone else means by wearing the red poppy um, or to Assign you know any perjorative feeling to the red poppy because I think for most people I don't believe that it has that although I do believe it is it is used that way by the military and by often by governments but I think for me one of the reasons one of the things that I like about the white poppy is it's a it's a way to add some kind of nuance to my wearing of the red poppy it, it I'm able to kind of make it clear that while I'm you know remembering it. And honoring the the uh, veterans, um, that I think we need to do more than that, and that I don't accept the fact that we need to never, you know, you know, reduce our military spending because that would, you know, indicate that the past struggles were were in vain. It's enormously difficult, and to say that we need to intervene. Um, I guess to me that we need to do something doesn't mean military and that quite often the responsibility we need to protect is a military response that you know maybe you know if we were training up you know thousands more people in hundreds of thousands more people worldwide in skills of negotiation in in empathy building and things like that then we would be able to um, bring to bear in in this, these dysfunctional uh, conflicts, we would be able to bring to bear resources that might actually help people to come to understand each other better, help them to, to rebuild their, their country and their social structure. But my concern is that often what we're doing is, you know, we're training Soldiers, and we're training the military and the police, and the, that we're not building the civilian social skills that are the underpinning of a of a viable, peaceful community anywhere in the world. I don't think that the Western world is responsible for all of the the conflict in the in the world, but I do think that. Um, Western intervention has certainly um, fanned some conflicts, and West and supply of of uh, uh, military uh, materials from the West and also from China and other places. Yes, um, has has fanned it. I guess the reason I mention the West is not because I think the West is responsible for everything, but because that's where we are and looking at what our governments have told us and what the U.S. government has, have told their citizens about why they were intervening in the Middle East to make the world a, a safer and more democratic place, that we need to ask those questions and look hard at, at our, our leadership and what, what we're doing and whether it has any chance of actually making the world, and even Canada, a better, safer place. Because I don't think Canada even is a safer place, like the world really isn't. <laughs>